Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Endgame. Joining me, as always, on our quest for who knows what is the man in Seattle himself, Bill Fleckenstein. How are you, my friend? I'm doing wonderful. How are you, mate? I am doing just fine. Thank you very much. We have a a returning guest today, which is always good fun to talk about what we said then and how it's played out. And I have to say, gentlemen joining us, Greg Jensen, the co-CIO of Bridgewater, absolutely nailed it when we had a conversation with him just, uh, just under a year ago, Bill. Yeah, they had the right framework, and um, it'll be interesting to see how they navigated this period, given the, you know, the large asset base they have, and given how tricky it's been. You know, what are some of the tricks they have up their sleeve? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, listening again to that conversation from last year, it was amazing, actually, what Greg said and how much of it played out. So I would urge anybody listening to this to perhaps go back and listen to that again before we have this conversation. It's, it's well worth your time. But let's not waste any more time dwelling on the past, Bill. What do you say we uh, we bring Greg in and see what he's got to say now? Yeah, let's get after it. Well, Greg, welcome back to the End Game. It's uh, it's good to see you again. Well, good to see you. It's funny, you know, uh, looking back and listening again to our conversation from around about a year ago. It's amazing how prescient that conversation we had was. You know, you nailed so many things that were going to happen in the next period of months, and you know, we find ourselves in a completely different world to the one we've inhabited when we had that conversation. So there's so much to talk about, but I think the most sensible place to start is inflation, because at the time we had that first conversation, Team Transitory was still on the field and talking very hard about how this was still transitory and you know we're going to let things run a little hot and we're going to average inflation out. We'd had all that, but you were calling for that to be proven incorrect, and obviously it has been. So as we stand in this new world today with high inflation, with the bit between their teeth... Just give us a general assessment of how you see the world today versus how it was a year ago. Yeah, well, going back to when we had that conversation, I think it was August of last year, you know, sort of unbelievably, given what was going on, the the 10-year note was at 1.3% uh, when we were having that conversation. And like you said, even though inflation had already picked up, but um, but that belief that it was a, it was a supply side problem and that what we talked about then was that this was more of a demand shock than a supply shock. And the demand shock was caused by the policy adopted after COVID of what we call monetary policy three, but that's the printing of money and spending that money through fiscal policy. And that creates demand without supply. That played out that you had the demand shock that wasn't, um, you know, wasn't matched by supply. And so even though it, it looks like because you see all these supply problems, but the, the main cause was such a massive surge in demand, the supply couldn't keep up with. And so then you get inflation and you start a cycle, right? You start the wage inflation cycle that's been now playing out for a while. And you've got a, a huge deal. And the Fed was so far behind. It's, it's, it was amazing for us that both the markets and the Fed all the way through last year, um, you know, we were getting what we thought all the fundamentals, right? We made 
money and pure alpha and stuff, but but not nearly as much as we got the fundamental conditions right. And then everything hits in the first quarter. The whole the markets start to reflect the reality. The Fed turns on a you know turns massively, and that's continued into the second quarter. And a lot of just like COVID accelerated the shift to monetary policy three, the printing and spending of money. It accelerated that shift that was going on on a secular basis. The Russian invasion of Ukraine accelerated the deglobalization, accelerated and actually did make a real serious supply shock on top of the demand shock that you that you flow into this. And all of a sudden, the, the Fed's caught and now they're hyper reacting. And in, in my view, they're, they finally reacted, but now they're actually hyper reacting and misreading what's likely to go on. I think we move from that high nominal GDP inflation story to now this even more risky dynamic because you're going to, you're, we think we're right at, we're on the edge of the recession starting now, whatever we're, we're heading to a recession in real terms and a significant one at that. Um, I'd say I'm as like sort of as confident in that as we were in the inflation call before and that the markets are not pricing that yet either, even though it seems like it because equities are down 20%, but the 20% move in equities only reflects the discount rate, right? The actual cash flow expectations, if you just take the interest rate going from 1.3 a year ago to 3% today, three a little over three today, the effect that has on a discounted cash flows is all that the price has done so far. It hasn't priced in a real decline in the cash flows, which I think is we're in it. This is coming. The next six months are going to probably be about the decline in profits. The margin situation is awful in terms of the pressures. The um, demand, in our view, is just about is falling off a cliff now, unless you're in the sectors where there's shortages, commodities, et cetera, that demand is, is about to drop. And um, and the Fed has painted themselves in such a box that they're not going to come to the rescue for a while, that they're actually creating a massive liquidity hole um, relative to asset prices. Now, it's somewhat appropriate because of everything they had done before, but but the um, the fact that the Fed is running off its balance sheet, selling, forcing the sale of treasuries into a market where there's nobody to buy them uh, because they're still not priced. At a, at a yield that's very attractive and that people have to sell something to buy them because the main buyers who buy bonds on leverage are the banks. And the banks um, bought so many bonds last year, which was another totally crazy thing, that how many bonds banks bought last year on the basis that they viewed they, that they could maintain deposit rates under even under a 1.4 or five year for five years or something. And they're getting burned. They don't need more bonds. They need less. So it's really got to flow to the rest of the private sector that actually have to come up with cash or sell something to buy bonds. And there's just not a lot of that. So either that's going to happen, that gap's going to be filled by equities falling more or rates rising a lot more. But either way, in aggregate, asset prices are still under a, a tremendous amount of pressure as we go into a recession. And the Fed is looking in the rearview mirror and going to be um, tightening into a recession for you know the first time in a long time and that 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 and they're going to have a hard time because inflation while we now think from a cyclical perspective you'll start to see inflation fall from a secular perspective inflation's on the rise and so it's going to fall more gradually than the markets expect and 
it's going to be a problematic thing because the Fed's going to, we're going to be in a recession with the Fed having difficulty easing. So that's a lot of change um, yeah. from a, a year ago, a ton of things to talk about, but that, that's a quick overview. Absolutely. I, you know, one thing that strikes me when I listen to all that, and it's pretty much identical to how I see the world, but what I've been struck by lately as I've thought this through, and you just laid it out so beautifully there, is if you brought somebody in who kind of understood how finance works and understood markets, they don't have to understand it to a tremendous degree. But if you laid out the case you just laid out there, I'm sure their response would be, what are the Fed doing? How can they be doing what they're doing now, given the fairly obvious recessionary call we're seeing? The data is cratering, and yet it seems the Fed are out there every day. There'll be a governor somewhere reiterating, trying to jam this idea into the public conscious that they are hawkish. They're not going to pivot. They're going to keep going. You know, We had Waller out the other day talking about we're going to get to 4%. Where's the disconnect here? Because it almost feels like they're doing their damnedest to create a short, severe recession in the hope that it can be short and contained and then we can put our foot on the gas again. Yeah, it's been interesting. Uh, this part I didn't totally expect. I thought the Fed would handle this differently, but they, they, they lagged so far behind that when you do that, the catch-up is so risky, right? Because they're which way are the risks skewed now? And, and what's been sort of interesting too is watching the politics uh, change in the that inflation, how negative the politics of inflation have been, and that now they are under incredible pressure to get <clears throat> to get inflation down, and um, and they're looking backwards, not forward. I think they, the, I think their views on growth are very different than ours. Even though I I, I agree with you, I'm, I'm not sure why. It's a little bit like their view on transitory inflation. It doesn't seem like the cause effects and just playing it out is is in now. Maybe you and I will be wrong. There are things like the wages are strong and the wages are going to turn into spending to some degree. But but when you add up the pieces, I, I, I just don't see it. So I think that the inflation freaked them out, though. And to get inflation, if they mean anything serious about their target, they're going to have to cause that recession, right? To get back to two, they've got to do something so damaging. Now, and I think in the end, when they start to feel that, they're actually going to give up on two. So I think that basically what they're going to do is say we're going to two, do things, not realize how bad the recession will be and all the cost of that, come into that and then give up on the two over time. Um, and that that's actually the seesaw that's going to eventually happen. And um, But that that I agree with you right now, I think it's just so backward looking that they're going to make the mistake. And you know, the scariest thing for assets in the short term is that the inflation stats, there's just flukiness in, and they're lagging, right? Inflation will come down for cyclical reasons. Now, I'm now team transitory in a sense, but a, but a cyclical decline in the, over the next six months. But what happens next month is going to have such an undue effect on the Fed. And who knows, that could, go, that could go either way with how ridiculous some of the stats inside there are, particularly on a short-term, month-by-month basis, what they do with rents or whatever. Um, but the realistic thing is, look, you've got a cyclical massive down coming on, defla- on inflation. At the same time, you've got a secular up. And, um, and the Fed's trying to get to two. Um, they're hurt. They might even overshoot on the first thing, but the underlying inflation pressures will likely be strong because of the deglobalization, because of the fact that in the next recession, we know what the governments are going to do across the world. They're going to print money and spend it. So each recession is going to come out with more of what we've already seen. I mean, you see it in California today, you know, now that they're 
they're going to hand out checks to deal with inflation. Politicians <laughs> have found the, the tool and they're going to use the tool unless they absolutely can't. And um, and I think that's going to be true across uh, the world so that the next the next cycle will probably be even more inflationary than this one because they'll use uh, that tool again to get out of it. Um, so that the, those will be the steps. But in terms of the Fed, I think the main thing is being very backward looking and being very nervous and somewhat understandably nervous that they let the inflation problem set in. And now they have a real responsibility to end that. Could I ask a question about credibility? Because I keep thinking about it and you just kind of phrased what you said in such a way that I thought it made it pretty clear. What I can't quite get my head around and hoping that maybe you can have an explanation is it seemed like the Fed's credibility never seems to really get dented. You know, if we look back two steps, we had the stock bubble and then we had the real estate bubble. Arguably, the consequences were irresponsible monetary policy, which was, of course, a rounding error compared to QE versions. And then when they come into QE, they say, last summer, as you said, it was relatively obvious we were going to have a problem. They maintain the transitory stance. And now they're trying to argue that the economy is fine so they can stay tight when it's clearly not fine. And then you posit that, you know, when we go forward, they'll have to give up on two because the damage would be so bad. When I put that all together, I say, how is it they maintain credibility through this? And do you have any thoughts about why they've been able to keep it and what it might take for them to lose it? And then what the consequences would be if they actually do start to really lose it? Yeah. Well, and I don't know how long the cycle is. I do think that the combination of policymakers will lose it eventually. Um, but mm-hmm. that uh, because the the thing we're talking about, the MP3 tool is just so powerful and they'll use it until they can't. And the mm-hmm. can't, what we mean by can't is the losing the credibility. Now, in the short term, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's interesting how much the markets actually do still take cues from the Fed. Like the markets are, give, they gave the, the markets weren't that different than the Fed in the inflation transitory thing. that And today, the markets are pricing in what more or less what the Fed wants, which is inflation is going to come down to two, a little over two in the break-even inflation market. And stocks, cash flows aren't going to fall very much. Um, I think the markets are wrong and 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 it's that I can't see how that'll be. But but it's interesting that the actually what the Fed's saying, the markets more or less believe. Um and um, and I think it's going to take a lot more of those jolts, the, the recognition setting in. So I think they did lose some credibility with inflation. I think they're going to lose credibility when they don't realize that what they've done in terms of going this fast and then the tightening. They could have, they should be tightening. They could have tightened at a slower pace. And, um, and you know, this and this end cycle could have went longer. They've turned it into um, this very, very fast cycle that um that will then require probably a very fast easing and then another very fast up in inflation and 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 growth. So I think over the those things you'll see the that policymakers losing the touch that they that people have thought they had losing the um credibility just because they struggle with all these constraints where it was much easier when you're in a massive disinflationary wave every time something goes bad all you do is cut rates and and um, spend money and everybody's happy. This policy, this is what we're talking about, what the end game is like, is when all of a sudden you hit the wall of you can't just print money and the problem is not of the nature that can be solved by printing money and spending it, which 
deflation can be. But this problem is the problem that's the true mess. And I think you'll see there that the problem, the inflation problem, create the credibility and that'll decline. And in the end, that's that's very bad for paper currencies, right? That in terms of what it's going to be like, that well, it's it's a little hard in the currency market because all the, most of the central banks are doing the same thing. So it's not that um that simple as just to say the dollar is going to go down. But I think that that's part of the path is they lose the credibility of the the dollar, it hits productivity in the United States because they've created a level of a bad investments and volatility that hurts productivity in the United States and in in the world. And then this, um, and then you get the movement away from those currencies and the eventual reset of the currency system in some form, either the kind of Volcker-like form where somebody squishes the economy to get inflation down, or you um, end up with a uh, some sort of pegging system because the credibility is so damaged that, that you can't get it back. Um, so I do think we're going to go through that arc, but probably over a couple of cycles. Craig, it's interesting. And this, and this brings me to something I wanted to ask you because you said something that stuck with me for a year now. I keep hearing it rattling about in the back of my head. Uh, and you said, I'm paraphrasing slightly, I'm sure, but you basically said, look, we know what losing is. When you lose, you've lost control of the currency. And as you've just laid out there, and I agree with that completely, but a long way through this endgame journey, you know, Bill and I have had one and a half eyes really on Japan as the kind of vanguard of all these policies. And even though the demographics are different and the structure of their bond market is different, there's always been this kind of sense that Japan is going to show us the way. And this idea of losing control of the currency is ultimately means you're losing the battle seems to be playing out in Japan right now with the yen. So I'm curious as to what you think about that, whether this is just an episode, whether the Bank of Japan can get this under control. It seems difficult to see a path to that if they want to maintain the peg on the tenure. But just give us a sense of how you guys look at Japan and the signals that you're being sent by the bond market and the currency markets there. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because Japan has struggled for so long to get to get inflation to, to do that, that they... Um, that even through the cycle with maintaining that interest rate peg, they still haven't created much in the way of inflation. Um, and the yen decline hasn't caused much of the way of inflation either yet. Now, I think it's clear what you're describing, which is you can't have both. You can't have a uh, strong currency and an uh, interest rate peg underneath the fair market value, which they're clearly doing. You can see that in the fact that they have to defend it illustrates where the fair market is somewhere far from where um, where they're setting it. Now, to me, to be clear, this is what they want. They're like the Fed before, although I think in Japan's case, they have a better argument than the Fed did, but that, um, that they are doing this on purpose to create inflation. So they want the currency to go down and they want inflation to go up. They're trying to break the back of a secular disinflation and literally and change this. Now, I think they're probably going to be surprised when it like the Fed, they under they underestimate how how this ends up playing out um, is my guess. Although I'll be clear, this is one thing. There's a lot of disagreement at Bridgewater between uh, between different people in in whether it's going to catch in terms of an inflationary thing, how big a deal this is. But what I do think is right now they are more like the Fed in the beginning parts of 2021 is this is what they want. They want the currency down. They want inflation up. They're still early in that, in their desire for that. And that's what they're getting. And, um, and then I think you could play this out further. I don't think they're concerned here with the currency. 
But I think the thing can easily accelerate the way it accelerated on the Fed. And all of a sudden, you know, they're forced to move rather than moving at a more measured pace with conditions. And um, and so that's that's how I would say it's going to play out. I, I think it's um, my personal view is that they're going to get their own wave of inflation like the rest of the world. They're going to be forced into moving and it's going to be sloppy because they're moving so discreetly rather than gradually with the conditions. Greg, where do you think this notion of inflation is good came from? I've seen it evolve at the Fed to where they talked themselves into 2% inflation was actually their mandate, or at least people claim that that's what they say. And now I think that anyone who's objective can see that having inflation as a goal is kind of a bad idea because it can get out of hand. And I'm a little surprised that the Japanese haven't taken a bit of a lesson from what's just happened here, especially given what the yen's done and what commodity prices are doing in general. I don't quite understand why they think inflation is good. Are they just misnaming inflation with real economic growth? Yeah, well, I think it's arguable, but my the main thing is I think they think a higher level of inflation creates more policy flexibility on monetary policy. If you have zero inflation, and a zero bound on interest rates, more or less, that you don't want to get into negative interest rates. You have a, you know, a zero bound on real rates, and in a country with the demographics of Japan, potentially you have this inability to create the consumption and the real growth that they want. And that by being able to get inflation up, get real yields down, the potential to create more economic activity, I think, is the is the reasoning. And I don't think that's necessarily wrong reasoning. I think that the you know, the U.S. problem is much when you, you've you totally lost grounding of anywhere near 2% is the big problem. I don't think the 2% target, in fact, I think they're going to end up having to raise that target. But it, again, like you said, it shouldn't really be a target because it's not like that. You're trying to achieve an economic outcome of yes, stability, exactly. et cetera. And we've now got inflation in our mind as such a, such a central thing to target. And I think in both directions, it could be a mistake. You have to look at what's the best outcome for the economy, not a specific inflation rate. And that's why I think what they're doing today is pretty nuts because, <laughs> um, and that, but also they were totally nuts nine months ago in the opposite direction. So they, um, so I think that you're right. I think of inflation as the effect it's going to have on productivity, the effect it's going to have on investment. Those are the reasons we should care. And it's turned into a goal in and of itself. Greg, you must look closely at the JGB market, I'm sure, even if it's just a fascination like a lot of us. But when we see what's happened there, when we see this, this yield curve pegging that Corrodesan has put in place and the lengths which they've gone to to defend it, and you know, after the RBA's debacle back in October of 2021 and seeing what happened there when they had to back away from yield curve control, and we saw the three-year go from 10 basis points to 100 basis points almost in a matter of days. This idea of what's been called the widowmaker trade, being short JGBs, has been kind of around for two decades. And unless people have been very tactical, they've, they've lost money over that period of time. But as you look around the world for markets big enough to kind of accommodate Bridgewater, do you look at this JGB market and look at the setup now, given the constraints which are building around the Bank of Japan, do you think we're nearing a time where the JGB market once again becomes a place that people will want to place bets? But I understand there are constraints around the mechanics of that, but notionally from a top-down perspective, is the JGB market once again 
in the Bond vigilante site, to use a less trite phrase? Yeah, well, it definitely is. I mean, again, it's not as attractive as it looks on the surface because the bonds are so special. And so the actual yield you're shorting is much higher than the quoted yield because, because of the reason you're saying so many people want to be short. A, and the, JG, the BOJ owns almost all the bonds. Yeah. Right. So the um, so there's not very many bonds to short, and they're ma- they're massively special. So that means you end up, you know, paying a, a lot for that short. So it's it's not mm-hmm. as obvious as it seems on the surface that um, that's a great setup. I, I, you know, I think it's an okay setup to be clear. I think it's still a pretty good uh, skew, but um, but you have the that that the when you look at oh, is the the yield going to be 25 basis points six months from now? Well, it's got to be like 50, 55 to make money on that trade. So A, that it's not as quite as good as it, it might look from a distance because of the specialness of the bonds. Um, so, but yeah, I think you're looking at this, the point that you're making, which is, I think these are dominoes, right? The, the feds fall in the, you know, Europe, lag, like the same thing happened in Europe. I think the, that the likelihood, the same thing happens in Japan and to get a bet where, where you can take the other side of a policymaker that's generally a lot better than taking the other side uh, because they're not even trying to make profits. They're trying to achieve an outcome <laughs> that, and their outcome they're trying to achieve actually causes higher rates. So they're on your side in a sense yeah. where most of the time you're taking a uh, position a in, a, point. in yeah. a market, you're doing it against um, somebody who's, who thinks you're wrong. That's, that, you know, and, and they're probably pretty smart themselves. So, so these are usually great, um, great setups. And if the BOJ didn't own all the bonds and they weren't so special, I think it would be a particularly great setup. So basically, it costs about 25 beeps to borrow them? Yeah, over that kind of time frame. Yeah, right. Wow. Wow. I ha- That's why the futures market there trades where it does. Right, exactly. Uh, okay. Well, as long as we're on the quality central banker tour, if we turn to Europe, it seems like Lagarde and company have really no idea what they're supposed to be doing because- Obviously, they've got a huge inflation problem, but we've started to see spreads widen, you know, in Italy in particular. And I, I can see how she could have a problem where they've got inflation, but yet they want to buy bonds. I mean, sorry, I don't want to be pejorative. How do you think that process plays out? Yeah, what a mess. I mean, they are, <laughs> it's even significantly worse and they're starting at a much weaker level of activity. They're likely going into it even deeper. I talked about the US, but, but in our view, an even deeper recession. Than the U.S. is, it's the, the, obviously the energy impact is massive. The fact that they have to have a huge fiscal response, they've got to build military, they've got to build, um, they've got to build infrastructure to deal with the energy issue, um, and they don't have enough energy to go around. So you've got this economic, massive economic problem, and um, and like you said, then they want to not let the spreads blow out. Um, because the private sector doesn't want to buy those. The ECB was buying all those bonds. Now who's going to buy the Italian bonds? And I think that itself, like you said, in an inflation, trying to deal with debt problems through purchasing those assets is an extremely difficult thing that they probably will get themselves tangled up in a mess there too. And that in the end, in an inflation, you deal with debt problems restructuring. In a disinflation, deflation, you deal with it by money printing. And that in the end, the the path with Italy and whatever is probably much more plausible a restructuring, or they're just going to worsen the inflation picturing and get into this constant stagflation if they just what they have to do to maintain these very bad credits. Um, so, and then on top of that, 
you know, right now we're in a little bit of a lull from a political perspective in Europe because the Russia invasion created some unity, but that's mm-hmm. likely short term. I mean, if history is any guide, this set of economic conditions, you think that politics were messy uh, before this is an inflation with a growth downturn into rates rising and assets getting killed. Um, man, the political upheaval and the likelihood that that leads to some you know, something very different than we have today is is really high. So we're quite, quite nervous that that people are still overly optimistic on Europe and the ECB's ability to manage this just because it's an incredibly terrible set of um, conditions. It's it's uh, it's super hard to manage all those things, try to keep the spreads low, the rates rising, not having your own commodities <laughs> and um, having a manufacturing infrastructure that's become so uncompetitive because of the commodity pricing. I mean, what a very, very difficult set of conditions. Yeah. I mean, uh, apart from that, how was your evening, Mrs. Lincoln, is the phrase that springs to mind. But Craig, uh, you know, it's interesting when you, when you talk about that, and there's been a lot of ink spilled recently talking about Bridgewater, and you guys have been very vocal about this in Europe. So to the extent that you can, obviously, I understand there are sensitivities around it. Talk about how you're trying to structure that belief that Europe is in a worse position rather than the U.S., yeah, well, I think it's um, like I can't get into the positions particularly, but the basic macro situation is you have in Europe this this huge supply shock on top of everything else. And you already have an economy that's not as distributed, doesn't have the technology, doesn't have the things that the the U.S. has. So in terms of how to like position, right, I think there's two possibilities. There's the possibility the economic contraction is is extremely steep and they're positioning for the economic contraction. And maybe that takes some of the edge off of inflation. But if you don't get a deep economic contraction, you're likely to have a very hard inflation. So making sure that you're not, it's not just one thing. The media talks about one thing they pick up on or whatever in our positioning, but it's a multiple things simultaneously looking at the aggregate of how does the aggregate of that play out. And so again, I think in that case, you want to be you know, very wary of almost everything because something's got to sell off there um, to make the whole equilibrium work. And maybe there's, a, I guess, a path for equities, but it's a hard path um, that, that mainly there's a, um, the main thing is then if you do imagine a situation where they keep growth acceptable, um, there's a repercussion of that too. And I think the repercussion of that will be much higher inflation. So so th- those are the, the ways we kind of structure that trade to look at the macro. And all of it is worth just saying a, a word about Bridgewater, that everything that we trade is systematic. It's from 40 years of studying the markets, taking everything that we have in our brain, this type of conversation, translating it into algorithms, applying those algorithms across countries. And the opportunities today, there's so many huge things. Like It's just such a wide range of huge things going on. That you want to be diversified across because they're who knows you'll be wrong about some of them, but um, but today is extremely target rich for our systems, and um, in the, because the because there's such big policy changes and policy mistakes in our view and um, huge flows financial flows uh, all around the world, so it's been one of the, it's one of the most target rich macro environments that we've ever seen. When we talk about this uh, trifecta of central bankers that we've just been through. It occurs to me that that is a giant swath of the world's currencies, and it seems like it's hard to be bullish on any of them. I mean, you could relatively pick, I guess, the dollar over the other two at the moment, but as you noted, we have problems here as well. Do you think we've been through a period similar to this where the lion's share of paper currencies 
are you this challenged? And if it's as bad as I think it is, what's the anecdote to that? Well, I think like you're saying, this is a very rare. I mean, I think you could look to the 70s and whatever and see some some similarities to extreme pressures on currencies. I do think that's going to be part of the next 12 month story too, is, is major currency volatility. I'm not sure which way it'll go, honestly, but the, that because policies are shifting so quickly and these differences, Japan, what Japan's doing and what Europe's doing and what the US are doing are so different that um, that the currency volatility hasn't quite caught up with the uh, reality of the differences. And um, and so I do think you'll you'll see that. And so yeah, I think it's going to be a super challenging time as people think through: Do they really understand their liabilities? Do they really understand what they want from their currency perspective, or is it just falling out of kind of a historical sort of laziness? And um, and so I think you'll see a. It's I think it's going to be very challenging from the perspective of a lot of volatility, and. Um, and I think it's extremely challenging because I think what they need to stabilize the currencies relative to inflation and everything else, they're not going to be able to do, which is that's, I mean, the Fed is sort of saying they're going to do it. I mean, if they do keep hiking at the rate the markets are expecting them to or faster, I do think they'll get, the currency will be strong and that they'll get inflation down, but they'll get a whole lot of a whole lot more than that. Greg, we spoke last time about this, and I'm curious as to get an update on your thinking about it, because- I think you posed the big question, how do you hedge policymakers not getting everything they want for the first time in, in a long time? You know, and and that the more I've thought about you asking that question, the more important it's become in my own attempts to try and try and figure this out. Because we're in this weird kind of twilight zone where the Fed are out jawbinding that they want higher rates. And at the moment they're getting higher rates. But if they do get what they want there, we have some material problems. So you've got this position where if the Fed gets what they want, we've got problems. And yet you're wrestling with this idea of how do we hedge a world where they don't get what they want, which they've had for 20 years. So how do you juggle those two and try and kind of come out with a strategy that will work on both ends of that? Yeah, well, that has been the, uh, you know, one of the things that we built right after, um, right at the beginning of the COVID recovery was this, was how do you build up this measure, whether they can get what they want and what do you do if they can't, right? And that today they're in this situation totally. They cannot get what they want. They want inflation at two and growth at two and they can't have it. Um, so they're in this terrible spot. So what does that mean as an investor? Well, largely that means that, A, the risks are massively elevated. This is a pretty terrible time to own assets. Um and of course, it's also hard because it's a pretty terrible time to own currency, depending on what they do as well. But but it's a terrible time to own assets when you have this. And if you look in history, whenever the, these things are in conflict, essentially the currency inflation is in conflict with the growth situation, man, get out of the way. Um, and we don't think it's, it's not too late for that. A lot of people are saying, okay, well, stocks are down 20% or whatever. No, but this problem is nowhere near reconciled. And until the problem's reconciled, there isn't likely a bottom. That's at least what... I would suggest history says. So it's one of the worst times to own assets when you have this situation. And um, and so there's that, right? Before last year, I th- the way that you wanted to deal with this because of the pricing was you wanted to be short bonds. Now that the bonds have risen and the cash flows are no longer, are not, are pricing um, to continue to be strong when they're actually going to be weak. Now you've gone from bonds being really bad 
to bonds and stocks and everything more or less being really bad. And, um, and that's been the, you know, the shift in our positioning and all of the study of every time in history when policymakers couldn't have what they wanted because, because the goals were in conflict suggests this is, this is just super dangerous. And, um, and that, that being blindly in assets. The other thing I'd say is people, investors have, um, stopped caring about liquidity, but stopped caring about the liquidity of their holdings. That, um, And that's going to create, I think, some devastating things where people have not valued being in private equity or private debt or whatever that they can't get out of. All of a sudden, their allocations to those things are shooting up because the public markets are falling and they still have to contribute more to those things. That valuing liquidity in this type of environment, the ability to adjust because things are just, you're getting a year in a week. Um, and that um, if you can't adjust, you're in a, a much more difficult situation. So that's another element of, of what I think is playing out. But the main thing is just recognize they can't get what they want. It's a big deal. And in the meantime, you want to be super careful about holding any assets that are dependent on reasonably stable Fed policy. You said two things, and I want to come back to liquidity again in a second, because I think that's an important conversation to dig into. But a couple of things you said there when you talked about this is the most target-rich macro environment you've seen, and also this is an environment where the risks are so elevated. And that leads me to think, and maybe the three of us to kick around a little bit, the way that retail traders have been able to be in these markets through this period of buying the dips worked nicely for them. It feels like we're coming into a period now where this is a professional game. You know, you've, you've been on the field playing Little League and now you're coming up against 90 mile an hour fastballs beaning around the head every pitch. How should retail investors or perhaps not professional investors think about the situation you've just laid out where it seems like there are so many fat pitches but the risk of either not hedging correctly or getting in the wrong trade at the right time is enormously elevated right now? Yeah, well, I, I, I totally agree. I, I didn't mean to say they're fat pitches. It's actually super- no, 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 no. I, that, that was my generalization, not yours. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, no, and I, I but I, I understand how it could be interpreted that way. It, it is super difficult. Like the, the first thing is, I, I think there are a lot of interesting things, but man, knowing how to keep your bets small. Like I made this, this point that like betting against bubbles is one of the easiest ways to be right and broke, um, yeah. and um, and and that. Um, that there is a tremendous amount of that, right? Like the JGB thing might break, but it might not break. You know, you could lose a lot in, a, in paying that carry for a period of time and all of these things. So they're all very tricky. So one of the benefits we have is we can trade up 200 different markets, diversify across a lot of them, much, much more difficult if you're doing that at a, at a retail scale. So I would start with recognizing you're in this hurricane and, you know, be just be wary of doing anything in big size or being very confident in anything, I could sound talking on this podcast. I could um, sound overly confident in the things I'm saying. And but if you've been playing this game, I've been playing it for 25, and Pure Alpha, we've been doing it for uh, uh, 40 years. And man, you will get it terribly wrong a lot, and um, and you have to be able to survive it. So that's super important, which is to to be able to set yourself up to survive uh, this this type of stuff. And um, and then so on that. Again, I, I think, like you said, I think it's a super hard game. I mean, I, I do believe that if you don't really have an edge, you shouldn't be um, 
taking big bets in, in these markets. You can entertain yourself if you want to, but but it's a super, super hard game with all the technology, all the thinking, everything that we're trying to do. It's a struggle for us um, to just play as a recreational thing. You're mostly just handing your money over to other people. So let's come back to liquidity then, because I know you guys monitor money supply and money flows and liquidity flows. Um, give us a, a sense of of the change in the liquidity conditions, because they've been taken for granted for such a long time now, you know, almost two decades of just as much liquidity as you need. Just from your perspective, talk a little bit about how that's changed and the and the different challenges that's uh, posing for you. Yeah, well, I mean, like you said, for two decades, there's been this incredible, like since the financial crisis, this incredible amount of liquidity and interest rates stayed very low. Everybody kind of, that the the world adjusted to liquidity not mattering. And um, and that that means that actually it matters more than ever because so many people have essentially, in a sense, levered themselves to not needing liquidity. The private assets are better than public assets. That all of these things that forgetting why liquidity is important because it wasn't. And now what the Fed's done, even though it's on a level basis, there's still plenty of liquidity relative to long swaths of history. You've never had a setup where so many people are as illiquid as um, as they are today because they adjusted to that liquidity world. So all of a sudden, the shock of having less cash moving around, less cash around as the Fed withdraws the cash, is um, you know is something that everybody's going to need to adjust to. And I think that the degree to which entities that actually have cash flows they need to make, pension funds, et cetera, that actually have to pay out money and yet have 50, 60% of their money locked up in illiquid investments, I think that you're going to see that play out. In markets, it's bifurcating in the sense that the markets we trade, global macro markets are actually plenty. It's not like there's a liquidity problem, transaction cost problem in those markets. There's that. They're actually largely because we got the intermediaries out, that those markets are fine. You don't stress the banks. It's okay. They're not in the middle of these things anymore. And, um, and those markets are basically they do get less liquid with the higher volatility, but in line with that. But if you move away from the big macro markets and you move underneath that, there's just less, in this sense, the, the banks being out do, does matter. There's nobody with the inventory. There's nobody making those. So you have in the more illiquid markets, more extreme. So you've got this bifurcation between the big liquid markets being very liquid and the more illiquid markets being quite illiquid. And when people have to sell those illiquid assets, which they also haven't had to do for a long time, um, that's going to hyper worsen that situation. So I think that you know you're going to get a reset over some period of time on how people view liquidity, unless the Fed like shifts very quickly. Um, but this is going to start to stress the idea that um, that that you don't need liquidity, that you don't need to be able to change your mind. Um, and um, and I think that's that that pressure is something that we're going to see right now. I think almost across the board. Illiquid assets are more expensive than liquid assets. People pay for the um, the right to lock up their money, um, and so I think that's an unsustainable condition. You, uh, in in fact, in your research this morning, your firm was talking about the liquidity hole, and I've seen very few people discuss the size of the treasury borrowings that will be staring us in the face prospectively without the benefit of A, the Fed buying and B, them trying to sell on top of it. You know, it sort of begs the question, where does the money come from? And throughout my career, whenever I get to the where does the money come from 
point. It always seems to come from somewhere, but this looks as tricky as any moment I've seen from that perspective. Can you take that ball and run with it a little bit? Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, first off, like you said, the, that, um, that piece that Alex Schiller wrote, who's a uh, incredible investor researcher at Bridgewater, he, uh, he's laying that out. And that what you see is that there, that if you take how many treasuries, both the combo of what the fed's doing and what the treasury's doing, that you're going to have about 8.8% of GDP of bonds for sale. And you're not getting that. The, and the fed's not buying them. The fed's actually selling, as you said, and the, um, and there's nobody to buy them and you have to come up with somebody's got to eventually right, you got to get it from somebody's cash. So if the investor does it, they got to sell stocks, get cash, buy bonds. Somebody's got to got to buy be induced into getting cash into these risky assets. And what you you're seeing is that that what will it take to buy that many bonds? What interest rate do people actually want to give up their equities et cetera, to do that? And that's where we're still trying to find that equilibrium, right? Rates keep rising, Stocks keep falling. Um, how do you get that equilibrium? But if people don't lever, don't want to lever more, banks are the normal mechanism. You say, where do the bank, where's the money usually come from? Well, the bond market, the banks can print money and buy bonds just like the Fed can, um, but they um, through leverage, but they're not going to buy it as I talked about before. So now you actually have to actively get somebody to shift their portfolio into those bonds. And I think that really comes from price incentive that you got to get the bond yields up or you've got to make other assets so bad that people want the bond, the quote unquote safety of the bonds. And so I think that's where this liquidity hole, what, what it actually is doing is just the reverse. How did stocks and bonds rally to where you got, you know, 1.3% bond yield last year and yet equities where they were, it was all because you had the reverse of what's going on. You had the fed liquidity driving things, even when it made no sense at all. Today, you have the reverse. It actually makes sense for these assets to fall and you're sucking out uh, the cash and the liquidity and creating that need for those purchases. So the main way that it'll, the money will come is through lower prices. Like, And therefore, it takes the same amount of cash to buy less of it. Um, and I think it's it's not that surprising given what, the, what QE did to asset prices, that the reverse of QE into bad economic conditions is going to have a is going to reverse those moves. Last time we we spoke, you you laid out a vision of the future which uh, was remarkably prescient, as I said. And hopefully, everybody listening to this will go back and listen to that again because even though that conversation is a year old, as as a roadmap, it, it's still a phenomenally good listen. But we're in this position now where there's this competing tug of war going on between the central banks and the markets. And as you said earlier, in this conversation, we've had this kind of tailwind where everybody wanted the Fed to get exactly what they wanted because it was in everybody's best interest. And now that's kind of flipped around. The Fed wants asset prices down, but this soft landing they're trying to engineer, they want rates up, they want inflation down. And that really goes against a lot of what the markets want. And yet, as you as you pointed out, we've seen you know five-year break-evens are still suggesting that the Fed is going to get what they want. But how does that, do you think, resolve itself in the future? Do the Fed get what they want? And if not, what's the pathway from here? And at what point do you think they will have to pivot? Because so many people are saying, oh, it's a given. The Fed will pivot. They'll pivot early. As soon as they get a couple of bad prints that go against the narrative, they'll jump in. They'll not only stop QT, 
they'll have to start QE again. And and it seems to me that the market pricing inflation coming back down is really the market pricing the Fed buying bonds again, not necessarily inflation coming down. How do you kind of think about that particular dynamic? Well, I think um, I think the Fed won't get what they want, so they'll that they'll have to change what they want. But but the the way I think it'll play out is that, like you're saying, right now they're they're talking tough. I actually kind of believe they will pivot, but we'll see because it's going to be it's likely to be difficult. Like if a they've already cooked the recession, it meaning even if they change their mind tomorrow and say we're not tightening anymore, I don't think that avoids a recession. I think you get the recession, and the recession itself builds a certain momentum that until they use monetary policy, you actually don't offset that momentum. And are they, like, this is the question of how bad it is either way, right? If inflation's at five, you know, three, six months from now, do they ease? How do the markets react if they ease? What does the bond market do if they ease into a 3%, into a 5% inflation rate? Like, those are the questions that we will likely be addressing, actually. I think you will see inflation take down a little bit. Does that mean they can jump in and ease a lot? Politically, I, I don't know. And on top of that, you actually do have, you'll still likely have major problems in oil and whatever that you, you'll likely have some some residual commodity moves, particularly in energy. That um, that mix is going to be super scary for the markets and, and for the Fed. And I think they're going to cautiously stop even as the recession becomes more and more clear. And that to get yourself out of that recession, you still have a private sector that's pretty indebted. You have a lot of challenges in getting out of the recession. The Fed's actually going to need to uh, cut a lot to get out of the recession, and they're probably not going to be able to. And eventually, they're going to look at the recession getting worse and worse, inflation being stickier than they'd like it to be, and then decide that, well, we got to ease and we got to stop talking tough about inflation, and that they'll then pivot to saying this inflation is acceptable given what's going on in the economy. That's how I think that we go through those layers. But in the meantime, I think that the basic dilemma is if they cut too early, they risk losing um, on inflation a lot. And if they cut too late, they risk losing the economy. And I think they're going to end up you know, somewhere in the middle like with too, more inflation than they want and less growth than they want. And that that will be the, um, the end point because the idea of getting to two and two which is what they would really want, is just not going to be one of the options on the table, given where inflation is, economic conditions are, balance sheets are, looking across all those things. It just isn't an outcome that they can achieve in the next couple of years. We spoke a little bit in our last conversation about the societal pressures that were kind of building in the pipeline. And obviously, since then, we've seen a lot more of that. We've seen a kind of a bigger divide, and, and a lot of it is politics. But obviously, we've got midterms coming up. And then we're going to be straight into another election cycle. Has your thought process around those intangibles from a societal basis changed? And if so, how do you view the kind of increased fragmentation we've seen as a risk to uh, asset prices? Yeah, big. And when you talk about the risk in the US, I think this is a really big, hard one to discount and likely under discounted that we sort of count on the rule of law, we count on these things. And it's it's right. very hard to see how everything comes stays together, right? If you look at historical episodes, the only thing that brings people back together is some sort of massive common en- enemy and war type thing. Like otherwise these divides keep getting worse and worse and worse. And um and I think that also history would suggest the mix of weak growth and inflation is the revolutionary kind of formula economically. 
So, man, you look at this and it's depressing. Hopefully, I, um, hopefully there's a path out that is, that I can't see right now. But that um, that's the um, that I think economically the conditions are mostly getting worse. I mean, there's some good to be clear. One of the things for social stability that's helpful is definancialization. We have so massively financialized the economy. The um, asset prices relative to the economy are so out of whack, have been so out of whack, and this rebalancing, asset prices falling, cash flows in the economy increasing through inflation actually has some some benefits to socials. And you've seen that in wages on the on the low end of the income stream coming up. Like some of those things are actually good. But the net of it all, the high inflation, weakening growth, um, policymakers across every domain have lost their credibility and the Fed losing their credibility at the same time coming into midterms and then probably crescendoing into the next presidential election because you also have another, I mean, another major problem is if the Republicans, as it looks like they do control either the house or the Senate or both, I mean, we're frozen policy-wise for two years. So you also take fiscal policy off the table if you needed it in this recession, you're actually eliminating that. One of the things I think longer term, you will get those fiscal checks or whatever. But the next two years in the US, you're going to have a fiscal hole and just a general, probably federal policy hole where nothing will happen for two years because of how at odds everybody is. And there's so little room to compromise. So you look at this and you say, okay, it looks like those things are likely to get significantly worse. And where's that price? Risk premiums on assets, everything, credit spreads, everything is priced to be pretty darn fine. Like again, looking at the move, oh, well, stocks are down a little bit, but PEs in my view on forward PEs around 17 on those forward earnings, I think are at high risk and um, is still pretty darn high relative to a country that's coming apart um, and and uh, the Fed condition that they are. So so I think too many people are getting comfortable with 20% move is is a big move and not with how bad the situation is deteriorating on the interest rate front, the cash flow front, the inflation front, and the political front all at once. So I have a, a practical question. You know, you, you guys saw the inflation come, and it obviously, as we talked last August, okay, we got a train wreck staring us in the face with bonds. We got the set of problems that looks bad for equities. Now we're deep into this, and maybe bonds are slightly more attractive, but they have issues. So- I wonder, as someone who who runs a leveraged balanced portfolio, and I'm not trying to ask specifically how to do this, but I'm trying to get more at the general question that other people may be able to learn from, is when you have the view that you have and you have a good chunk of stocks and bonds as Bridgewater is sort of known for, how do you think about trying to prepare to manage the risk around something like that, knowing you're going into a period that's liable to be bad for both sides of that teeter-totter? If, that, if that's a fair question, I don't mean specifically, but well, I'll I'll, um, I'll try to answer that. There, I mean, Bridgewater's got two key ways that we make money. One's pure alpha, alpha, which doesn't have any bias to have any assets, okay, and therefore it can benefit and has massively benefited by the the types of positioning that we're describing, and it has no tendency to be long. Separately, we work on the problem of what's the best way to be invested. If you don't have alpha, meaning if you're not trying to guess at what's next. Right. Right. And so we're in this conversation, we're talking about a lot of guessing at what's next, which is could easily be wrong. Who knows? But the um, 
the now let's say you don't know what's going to happen. What's the right portfolio to hold? And the way when you're talking about balancing, a lot of times it's overly simplified to stocks and nominal bonds, which we we don't. You want to balance. You need to have, in our view, you need to have balance to whether growth goes up relative to what's expected or growth goes down or whether inflation goes up relative to what's expected or inflation goes down. So how do you protect yourself in this environment? If you have, if you had enough assets, energy, et cetera, that, okay, if inflation rises and growth weakens and you have that enough of those that they can balance out the assets that do poorly when growth, when the opposite happens. Um, And for us, that's what we try to build four portfolios. This is now on the purely passive side, but four portfolios that each of which are set up to take in assets that do well in the opposite situations. What, what assets do well if inflation falls? What assets do well if inflation rises? What assets do well if growth falls? And what assets do well if growth rises? And that's how you can create a portfolio that's balanced. Yes, it has some leverage in it, but lower risk relative to almost every portfolio that has um, almost all the assets in assets that do well if Inflation falls and growth rises. So if you look at what, what has happened and you compare portfolios in 1979, people held gold, people held commodities, et cetera. And they, they held a mix of assets and stocks were not generally a huge percentage of people's portfolios. You come in this 40 year run, everybody's got, you know, what, what is, they've got what did well, stocks, <laughs> private equity, the more growth oriented, the more illiquid, the better. And that's what everybody's portfolio is in. And that's actually truly risky because you go into a rising inflation, weak growth, those are awful assets to have. And so while we have suffered, to be clear, relative to alternatives over the last decade because we forced diversification in our beta, that um, that is because the environment's not always going to be like that, where you have falling inflation and reasonable growth. You end up in these other environments and you get cooked if you're in if you're in the type of portfolio where you have to look at the stock market every day. You mentioned commodities there. And, and before we wrap up, I just want to shift to that a little bit because you you nailed the the tailwind to commodities last time we spoke. So I'm curious to know your thoughts on whether you expect that run to moderate now a little bit here with prices where they are. And perhaps we could separate out commodities from energy or rather separate energy out from commodities so we can get your your kind of take on on the commodity complex as a whole and then particularly the energy complex going you know, into the next kind of six months. Yeah, well, the, the actual hit to the economy is a negative for some of the commodities, particularly commodities where there aren't major supply issues. And um, and I think when you think about commodities, the other thing you have to keep in mind and where is that even though the U.S. growth is likely slowing, China is pushing super hard on an infrastructure push. They're going to be using a lot of commodities. So even worse, in a sense, for U.S. policymakers is you could easily have commodities and the economy going opposite directions, worsening the inflation picture. And um, and at the time when and, and essentially taking more and more of the income to spend on commodities. And of course, I think we all it's all kind of commonly accepted now, but the underinvestment in commodities is a massive problem. Now it's not a problem for every commodity, and weak growth in the U.S. will weak growth in the U.S. and Europe will start to hit certain commodities. So you got to yeah understand that. But on the, it looks to us like oil is still quite like has a fair amount of upside, um, particularly relative to other commodities, and a risk of a real blow off, like something easily could go wrong. And as things come back online from the COVID thing in China, like there's there's pretty big deal there, and that the Russians 
supply situation we do think is worsening and will worsen as the lack of Western technology going in is starting to play out and, and cause um, a more of a supply challenge. Although at the same time, they've found more and more ways around the countries that are not buying their oil. Um, overall, I'd say that it's definitely switched from a world where everything was lined up for commodities to where there's these cross-cutting forces. But it's a very important hedge. I think in this environment, to the worst thing for equities right now would be another leg up in commodities. And so it's really important to have them uh, in a portfolio, even if the expected value is somewhere near zero, which I think is somewhere near zero, but but an extremely good diversifier where, where nominal bonds are hardly a diversifier. Um, I wanted to ask you about your view on gold, and it seems like it might fit into this mix. Um, I know in the past, your organization has been friendly to it. It's a commodity, but it's not. So you mind telling me how you think that fits into a portfolio right now? Again, I think an important diversifier, and I believe this next cycle is going to be very bullish on gold. I think the um, when the what I mean is when they when they actually again, which which I I don't know when there'll be six nine months or whatever when they turn, but gold um, a from a geopolitical perspective, if you think about the hardest things to hedge, the geopolitical risk, the China U.S. thing getting worse, what et cetera, I think gold is is critical hedge to that. I think the um, the basically it's gold's holding up pretty well given how much the fed's tightening and i think it will i think there's a real demand from central banks and will be from investors and i think as people get a little bit more used to um the challenges of cryptocurrency and whatever and, and that that gold will get some of the retail demand as well um so overall i think it's an important part of the portfolio a little bit bullish and i think you'll when you see the fed relent, that'll be the real signal and you'll get a, a, a probably a pretty big gold, gold move. Um, but we'll see how that plays thanks, out. Thanks. Thanks. That makes perfect sense. I just I was really curious to see what your view was. Terrific. Uh, Greg, look, it's been another fantastic conversation. I'm, I'm mindful of the time. Once again, um, both of these conversations, I've kind of looked up and realized how fast we've sped through an hour. So look, uh, again, my thanks to you for for taking this time to come and talk to this um, two phenomenally helpful conversations, I think for a lot of people. So, so thank you for being so, so generous. Thank you. It's always a pleasure talking to you guys. Well, Bill, uh, another fantastic conversation in this Endgame series. I mean, it really is the gift that keeps on giving and having guys like Greg come back and, and again, very generously give us an hour of the time. It, it really helps flesh a lot of this stuff out because it's, uh, we, it feels like we're moving into the next phase of this. Yes, we've been very fortunate to have really smart thinkers and practitioners be willing to chew on this topic with us. And um, it does seem that we are kind of moving into the beginning of the end of the end game, so to speak, given how all these central bankers are kind of in trouble. So um, I think the next year is going to be extremely interesting, but I don't want to get too far ahead of us. No, I think Greg laid out the bind that these guys are in beautifully there. So... Our thanks to him for, again, spending this hour with us. Our thanks to you, of course, as always, for listening to The End Game. You will find me on Twitter, should you wish to follow me. You'll find me there at TTMYGH. And I'm at FleckCap. The one and only truly original FleckCap from head to toe. All right, matey, it's been a pleasure as always. Uh, let's do it again. What do you say? Until we do it again. Yes, sir.
nothing we discuss during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.